BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. So you may have heard that collegiate athletics are somewhat in disarray, disrupted by the pandemic, and at least in football, the old alliances like the Pac-12 have crumbled. But as that happens, more and more universities have started competitive esports programs where they field teams playing blockbuster video games like League of Legends and Overwatch. We'll talk with some of the Bay Area's best collegiate esports players and other experts about the teams, the path esports have taken to twitchy prominence and gender inequities in the competitions. Esports, the collegiate activity, the industry, the future of sports. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So, the rise of collegiate esports is a trend you may have missed if you're not a devoted video game fan, but it's happened. There are more than 100 collegiate programs now, including a bunch here in Northern California. Some esports programs have even begun handing out scholarships or providing college credit for playing on a school team. Here to introduce us to this world, we're joined by Luke Winky, a writer who wrote a fantastic piece in The Atlantic titled Why Colleges Are Betting Big on Video Games. Welcome, Luke. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to hear you set up esports generally. Like a 2018 Washington Post poll found that 38% of young Americans identified as fans of esports or competitive gaming, which is pretty similar to the number who said they were fans of the NFL. Can you give us kind of a quick history on how we got sort of from StarCraft pros in Korea right. to where we stand today? Yeah, it's it's good it's it's good you mentioned that because esports weirdly has been around for a long time in in some capacity. Like there is a a game show called I think Starcade back in the eighties where kids would like compete over Pac Man and Dig Dug and things like that. <laughs> like uh, they're all like ten years old back in those days. But yeah, I, I think the current boom, like where the money really started to pour in kind of kicked off around 2010 alongside the rise of a game called League of Legends, which kind of mm -hmm. remains the biggest sort of competitive video game in the field. Uh, the developer there, Riot, uh, 
came over from Blizzard, another big kind of uh, uh, another big publishing studio, and and put out this game and kind of invested a lot in the idea that maybe people would want to watch people you know play this game competitively in like kind of a league format, and it worked. You know, like that was kind of when live streaming was really coming out. They didn't really have to go organize any television deals, you know, to go put. Uh, you know, competitive video game out there. You don't go ahead and need to go broker a deal with CBS or TNT. You can just kind of open up a Twitch channel and, and, and broadcast it. And then, you know, just the, the, the market kind of found uh, an audience yeah. just kind of, you know, without any of the uh, overhead from, from television executives. I, I think the, 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 the live streaming aspect, I think is really what kind of supercharged uh, the industry as we, yeah. as we know it today. Could you give us a sense of like the scale of Twitch? Yeah, uh, it, you know, Twitch started out as it was used to be called this website called Justin TV back in the mid two thousands, and that didn't really have a a real purpose to it. You would just kind of get on there. You were going to like you know, live stream your life, right? That was right, kind of the right. Yeah. yeah, there were people that were doing like twenty four hour live streams back in those days. It was quite quite strange, but um, yeah, it, that that was around for a couple years in the mid two thousands, and it sort of morphed into a hub for you know people kind of broadcasting themselves playing video games, which seemed kind of. I think crazy to a lot of people, but that actually found a real audience. There was a lot of people that, you know, wanted to watch, you know, people kind of talk and game and that kind of morphed into the, the hub for all these sort of esports ventures. After that, you know, you have like people that do, there are streamers out there. They get hundreds of thousands of people tuning into them, you know, and, and billions of people tuning them over the course of a month, things like that. And now it's like this really, you know, there's like political shows there. There's talk shows. It's sort of, sort of a, it's kind of like an alternative television for the youth. I, I would say that's probably the best way to kind of yeah. train so what does the pro esports scene look like today then? Yeah, um so uh, you have a couple uh a couple games that have consolidated most of the viewership. You have your League of Legends, your your Overwatch, um your Valorant. That that kind of draws the most eyeballs. Um but then for a while there like you had a lot of other publishers that just kind of wanted to get in esports in in some capacity, you know. It's just okay, we have a uh we have a competitive racing game. We have F one. F one has an esports division. You know, let's or or, or the NBA two K games. We're gonna have a league for, uh, you know, for 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 kids playing virtual basketball and people. So I can be killed by seven year olds. <laughs> right, exactly. Got it. Yeah. Uh, that has kind of died off a little bit. I think like there's been a bit of a market correction where the three biggest games in the field kind of have most of the market share and i think a lot of the smaller players have realized that it, it's tough to eat into uh, eat into that yeah so if you've got this kind of pro infrastructure you've got this kind of industry support you've got this infrastructure of of twitch and live streaming services mm -hmm. like why do we need collegiate esports um so i so when i wrote the story for the atlantic a couple of years ago um the thing that jumped out to me the reason it, it's good for these schools is it allows these schools to kind of leave an imprint onto college sports that they wouldn't be wouldn't be able to otherwise like case in point the the, the school i went and wrote about is a school called harrisburg university it's this tiny little kind of stem school in, in pennsylvania that would never be able to compete in collegiate basketball or the you know ncaa football they just don't really have the uh the recruiting juice but they have like multiple world championships in esports, because they just kind of dumped all their resources into there, it's sort of a sector that is not being paid attention to by you know your University of Texas or some of the other you know massive kind of college sports schools. So they they they're able to kind of leave a mark and and build some school spirits, and also maybe like you know I think it's also a bet that 
long term, maybe collegiate esports continues to grow, and you know they ha- they're kind of ahead of the game on a lot of schools that have a much larger endowment. Um, that that was the thing that jumped out to me, I guess from from a school perspective when I when I was down there. Yeah, I couldn't believe they they basically were like, "What would it have taken for us to get on ESPN?" Like the exposure that they <laughs> right. get, like it was like marketing dollars. Which I mean, let's be real, that is what college sports are for a, a lot of universities. In addition to sort of bringing in alumni dollars and things like that. So yeah, does it generate? You know, those kinds of fan bases. I mean, you went and you watched, you know, one of these big invitational, big, big mm-hmm. tournament. What was the experience of spectating uh, in this realm? Yeah, I, you know, in some ways it was cool to see. It felt like the school spirit had rubbed off on the town a little bit. Like I saw their, uh, you know, their 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 mascot was like, I think there's like a subway or something across the street. And they had their their mascot up in there like that. That's it seemed to be leaving an imprint a bit on the town of Harrisburg itself, but it was also kind of strange that like, you know, I was watching, you know, this, this school compete in these kind of high leverage esports matches, but it wasn't like there was like a ton of fans there. The people that were there were kind of families of the kids competing. It was sort of operating kind of like outside of the, uh, the fanfare you might expect at, you know, like a, like a, like a big 10 football game or something like that. But there are, I don't know if that might've spent exclusive to the school I was at. I know that like, I think, I think Boise university or Boise state, I think like they've, they've built like a big esports arena and have put in like the, uh, the blue football field they have with oh, their really? football team is in there. Yeah. Like they've, they've done a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. So um, I think it probably depends on school to school. The one I was at, has such a small kind of footprint that it wasn't surprised that that's how it felt. Um, yeah. But it also kind of like points to the, the, the broader fact that, you know, like uh, they're investing a lot of money into a thing that doesn't have a ton of eyes on it right now. So you'd probably expect it to, to feel a little strange at, at this yeah. current moment. At least, yeah, physical eyes. Let's bring in uh, Ryan Winter, president of Gaming Gators at San Francisco State University to talk to us about the Bay Area Collegiate Esports World. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to, you know, we were just talking about the experience of being like a collegiate esports player. For you, kind of day to day, what's it like to be, you know, on this team? Yeah, um, you know, it's a little bit interesting. San Francisco State, as it currently exists in the Gaming Gators, we're um, not an official program yet. Ultimately, that's our goal. Um, But, you know, we're just a student organization of... You know, all of these different people who happen to go to SS State who understand the esports scene, understand the collegiate esports scene, and we're like, you know what, let's try to organize, let's get together um, and, you know, come together and make these teams happen. Um, so for me, when I um, transferred to SF State, I was look, I was researching, I was like, hey, do we have an esports club? Do we have a gaming club? Because that was kind of my priority. Um, and looking around, I found the Gaming Gators. Um, and myself, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm proficient in Overwatch. That's a game I specialize in. And as I was looking into the club and what they had, what they didn't have, I saw they didn't have an Overwatch team. Um, so, you know, I kind of stepped into this role. I'm like, hey, um, I have this experience as a, um, you know, semi-professional, um, high-ranked player. I'm going to bring that experience into this organization and do my best to create um, create a team. Um so Ryan, wait, like, so tell me, like, how good are you? Like, if you were, if you you could go pro, like, if you wanted to, if you wanted to set aside your studies, do away with the rest of your life, and just devote yourself to Overwatch, like, you could probably be a pro. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, ego stroke myself too much here. Uh, <laughs> I however, was doing it for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, however, I I do think, um, you know, when I was 
practicing the most when I had my like my focus was on the game. You know, I was still doing my classes as well. Um, but I, I really felt like I brought something different to the competitive scene. I was climbing. I was playing against all the professional players who are on, you know, six figure plus salaries um, on on ranked ladders. And I would be out playing them. I'd be able to lead them in voice calls, be a leader, um, not only, you know, just against anybody but with with these professional players. So I really, you know, I feel like if in a in a different world, if I was able to just knuckle down, you know, turn on, put on the, the horse blinders, I really think I could have made it to the top level. So why go to why do what you're doing then? You know, um, that's a great question. I think in specifically as to Overwatch, you know, they've had a lot of development issues. They're coming out with a sequel later this year, um, but there came a time while I was practicing and playing that, you know, I could see kind of the writing on the wall that ultimately, you know, I could see myself reaching that pro level, but I wouldn't know if the developer and the infrastructure was going to be there to support me long term. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is something... It wasn't your parents being like, that's the craziest idea we've ever heard, please don't do that? Well, you know, my my parents, uh, you know, to say they're, you know, they they weren't um, not supportive, but they were also like, hey, um, you know, we like what you're doing, but also, you know, make sure, keep keep your perspective of what's going on um, clear. Um, and I think something that I realized and, you know, like I said, many other players realized was, you know, in esports, the the length, like the, the length of a player's career is really, really short. Um, you know, even past like 25, you're pretty much just ancient at that point really? in esports. Wait, is that just because of the your reflex? Like, what? why is that? Yeah, I mean, so most people kind of bring it up to, to reflexes, right? You know, once you, like, by the time you're 25, you're not as, um, you know, fully into, you know, to play a game, you have to use all your fingers, you know, ultimately, you know, one millisecond reaction speed or as fast as you can be. Um, so the older you get, it gets more and more difficult to, you know, play up at that level, especially, especially you know, as you get older, you also have other stuff you have to worry about, whether that's, you know, trying to pay rent, trying to, um, you know, take care of pets, um, you know, feed yourself, right? When you're talking about 16-year-olds who have the time to practice and scrimmage, um, you know, eight hours plus a day, it's going to be hard. I love that it's like ancient at 25. It's like even worse than being like a running back in the NFL. Uh, we're talking about collegiate esports growing in the Bay Area and around the world. We're joined by Luke Winky, a freelance writer uh, who's written great pieces on esports, and Ryan Winter, president of Gaming Gators at SF State. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Set against the context of the collapse of (laughs) traditional collegiate sports relationships like the decline of the Pac-12, we're talking about collegiate esports here in the Bay Area. We're joined by Luke Winky, freelance writer who's written great pieces about esports, and Ryan Winter, president of Gaming Gators at SF State. We'd love to hear from you. Are you an esports competitor or a gamer generally? Are you watching these esports competitions? Would you would you play in college? Or maybe you're a skeptic. You don't really get it. Give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's the number. It's 866-733-6786. Of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Joanna Brewer Assistant Professor of Computer Science at Smith College and Director of Research at AnyKey, which advocates for inclusivity in gaming, is now joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so your org studies sort of gaming generally and in inclusivity. What role do you think esports play in making gaming sort of more or less generally uh, inclusive? Well, esports is kind of, you know, the uh, visible forefront of gaming for a lot of people right now. I mean, witness, we're all here uh, on the show today, right? (laughs) And esports has really, you know, captured the attention of the public. And so as kind of the same way that, you know, um, professional sports function in our society, esports has this way to really, you know, set standards and set tones. So it has an opportunity to push diversity and inclusion to a new level through its representation, because as uh, we heard earlier in the show today, it's an entirely new platform with new rules. Most of this is live streamed rather than televised. And so we can kind of have a, uh, a chance to rewrite old uh, structures that might have been uh, gatekeeping folks from mm. uh, feeling welcome in these spaces. But at the same time, uh, you know, we're, we're living in a capitalist society. And uh, a lot of times we fall back into those own patterns, old patterns to make more money. So esports has a tremendous amount of opportunity with the, uh, you know, spotlight that it's in right now. But uh, just like with anything else, it's not a it's not a sealed deal yet. Yeah. You know, in reading um, some of the research that your org has put out, it seems like there's a debate going on about whether sort of all genders should play together or whether things should be, you know, there should be like men tournaments and uh, other tournaments for other genders. Like, how do you uh, how do you see that debate and, and what kind of support does any key provide? Sure. So at any key, we really like to think about, um, you know, specialized tournaments, competitions, organizations or groups that are for folks of marginalized genders, whether those are women and non-binary folks, uh, maybe they're LGBTQ kids uh, or maybe they're, you know, folks from different races. We see those groups as on ramps, not alternatives. So we want to see everyone playing esports together. That's kind of the promise of video games in a lot of ways. You know, sometimes we fall back on 
uh, you know, traditional gendered stereotypes around sports that, you know, different bodies have different limits and capacities. But in esports, we have this idea that, you know, anybody can play uh, a video game to the same level of fidelity. And so we think at, you know, any key that, okay, sometimes what is stopping us is not, you know, those, the ability, it's really the culture and the, you know, uh, you know, the room to scrimmage for eight or 10 hours a day and get productive feedback from players who are just a little bit better than you. That's what pushes us, right? And so sometimes that only happens in, in spaces where we feel safer to be our true and authentic selves. So we see uh, supporting those spaces as uh, something that really, you know, kind of provides an on-ramp. And it's the same thing that uh, I'm a professor at Smith College, a traditionally women's college, and Smith College still exists uh, in 2022. And uh, we'll hear our president often say that we're still here because we're not there yet. We're not in a fully equal society mm -hmm. yet. And so these things are necessary vehicles to get us to that equality we want to see. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it also seems like there's the entire ecosystem around esports, you know, like we were hearing from Ryan earlier and, and Luke, just the way that that streaming really kind of supports this this whole esports ecosystem. And if there's one thing that really seems to be true, it's that when women or marginalized people with marginalized genders uh, live stream, they face a lot of really nasty commentary. Are, are there ways that you have found to ameliorate that kind of situation? Yeah, that's an excellent, uh, you know, point that you're bringing up uh, when, you know, it's sort of in tandem with the rise of esports and the rise of, rise of online uh, video game play. We're seeing folks who are, you know, streaming with face cams. So it's a lot more easy to identify someone, um, you know, and, and throw your bias out at them if you can look at their body and make assumptions about them. If all you see is a username and you don't hear their voice, you know, sometimes you're less open to harassment in the earlier days of the internet. But I will say that I was a competitively ranked top 10 world player uh, in a game called Worms 2 when I was in college. And that was before face cam and voice. Comes. And I still got harassed all the time as a non-binary player. Wow. And so I think I think that uh, you know we we do put ourselves out there, but it's not a function of video games. It's a function of our society and the fact that certain folks are, are gate kept uh, from you know certain aspects of our cultures. And so it is true that uh, more uh, you open yourself to more harassment. But a lot of what my studies focus on as a researcher is understanding the ways in which precisely what you're asking, how do folks uh, stop that from happening. And what is amazing about live streaming and the cultural revolution that we're having in gaming is we're seeing large groups of folks getting together and that serves to protect one another. So those spaces I mentioned where a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, LGBTQ, LGBTQ gamers are together as a as a force, you know, as a group, they offer themselves kind of, you know, a more protected environment. So if someone comes and harasses just a single individual, it's harder for them to defend themselves. But as a team, as a mass, if one troll comes in and, you know, 100, 200, 10,000 people are like, go away, it really changes the narrative. Hmm. Hmm. So kind of a, a sort of collective team moderation. A hundred percent. The team moderation, that collective um, sort of, uh, you know, protection of a space where it's not just one person. It's not just the streamer. It's not just the gamer who's in the spotlight, but everybody who's there in the chat, in the room physically is upholding those values. That's something that we, you know, sports, whether they be esports or traditional sports, offer us that opportunity to tap into a real values-based community. And we see that often in, uh, you know, in collegiate and scholastic sport, sports where that's often their function. It's not just about winning. It's about building community. And so there's an opportunity to do that no matter, you know, if you're a member of a marginalized community or not. 
We're talking about the esports world, especially the collegiate esports world in the Bay Area, and it's. Uh, Growth and also, uh, you know, the the way that it has developed through time. Um, we are joined by Joanna Brewer, assistant professor of computer science at Smith College and director of research at AnyKey, which advocates for inclusivity in gaming. Luke Winky, freelance writer, written about esports. Ryan Winter, president of the Gaming Gators at San Francisco State University. And we're also uh, got some calls and comments coming in. Are you an esports gamer? Would you have played in college? Do you play in college now? Or are you a skeptic? Do you not understand why people want to watch other people play video games? I know there are those people out there. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Luke, a comment from a listener coming to you. Sky writes... I was a viewer during the initial rise of League of Legends in 2010, as we heard from Luke, kind of the consolidated a lot of interest in esports, and have two comments. First, esports commentators are usually as high quality as the Giants broadcasters are and make the game very fun to watch as long as you know what they are talking about. Second, I find it much easier to identify with the content while I'm watching a game I play than a sport I don't, and that's probably driving the youth viewership. Uh, so, Luke, the one thing I wanted to ask you about that was sort of the commentating and the just the, the building of basically like the spectacle and the show. I mean, you know, we know that the NBA went through a period like this. I mean, obviously, you know, the the NFL broadcasts like have all this kind of ridiculous pageantry around them. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the commentary and, and the spectacle of a live esports event, I, that's, I think, really effective in making people like believers in this industry, you know, when, when you're kind of in that, in that energy, uh, it's a great point on hearing people really knowledgeable about a game, talk about it, uh, which I guess is the appeal of Twitch generally, but in an esports context really does, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, even if you don't know a whole lot about the game or what's going on, I, I, they, they do a really good job of, of, uh, of catching people up um, kind of in an instant, which is, you know, especially when they have to throw around all sorts of like gamer jargon, you know, like, Oh, they got, you know, they got the red dragon buff and you're like, what? But they, 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 they have to, they have to kind of weave in and out of gamer terminology, but they do it in a, in a way that, that, that makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah, if you like, if anyone who's a skeptic, if you just uh, like, there's a fighting game tournament they have every year called Evo or um Towards the end, when they get to like the finals, people are coming out like they're like pro wrestlers to go uh, to go take the stage. And I, once you're in that uh, that pomp and circumstance, um, I, I think it helps a lot of people say that like see that there there really is something something worthwhile here. You know, it's funny too. It's only when I started watching Warriors basketball games with my kids that I realized basically an entire NBA broadcast is all jargon mixed with (laughs) the particular history of two teams, which you have to know because it would be like every 10 seconds, they'd be like, what's that? What's a free throw? Why is it only worth one point? You know, what's a um, three second violation? You know, all of these like obscure things that you don't uh, necessarily you know, if you've been watching the game for a long time, you don't necessarily think right. of that as jargon. But of course, of course it is. And so when we're faced with a new game, that stuff, you know, kind of really comes to the fore. Um, let's bring in a couple more guests and talk about sort of building a collegiate esports uh, program. We've got Kirk Robles, who oversees the Cal esports program. Welcome, Kirk. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And we've got Anzung. Uh, co-leader of the mentorship program at in the Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming Group. Welcome in. 
thanks for having me. So, Kirk, let's start with you. What has it been like to try to build an esports program at Cal? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey. Honestly, in 2017, when the group of students, uh, Cal Esports was kind of a student group at the time, approached uh, approached Rec Sports saying, hey, we'd like to get some more support. We've been winning some national championships here. How do we make that happen? And so as my job, I kind of oversee Cal Esports and the business development side of it. It was an opportunity for Rec Sports to really engage with a community on campus that would may not visit our gyms or know anything about our programs. And so again, again, our school is 30,000 plus, and here's a group of uh, pretty organized group of students willing here to say, how do we get support and how do we connect with the rest of the campus? And so it's been an awesome journey trying to build these sponsorship deals, create creating our Cali Sports Community Center in 2018 with has 54 gaming computers there sponsored hmm. by um, NVIDIA, Corsair. They really believed in the program. And then also on the flip side, kind of also why uh, Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming exists today, uh, two of the co-founders for the Cali Sports Program talked about, hey, you know, as two women identifying uh, students, we didn't feel like we had a uh, kind of a welcoming environment. How do we change that as well? And so that's why we we, we, we started the Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming Program. Um, it's, again, it's tied to a sponsorship in which there's the two co-presidents who lead the program are actually paid to do so. And I think that's a really important point kind of in collegiate esports that oftentimes a lot of these students, it is very student oriented and worked on, but they're not recognized or paid for their work. And for, for myself, again, being a fellow bear, I thought it was really important to invest in these students that are creating these awesome programs. Yeah. Hey, Anna, can you tell us about some of the things that your group has done to try and really support uh, everyone at, at Cal and make this uh, an inclusive environment? Yeah, of course. So uh, Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming was formerly known as Cal Women in Gaming. Uh, we changed our name pretty recently to be more inclusive of other marginalized, gen marginalized genders like non-binary people, trans people. Um, and as a club, we serve not only as a space where these gamers of marginalized gender groups can come together and, you know, just play video games and have fun together without having the fear of being harassed or being questioned about their identity. But also we provide various professional development opportunities. For example, I am the mentorship lead, which means I oversee a mentorship program, which seeks to connect students with industry professionals. Um, we do professional workshops. And we even help try to introduce our club members to game development, where we have yearly game jams. Yeah. You know, Ryan Winter, president of Gaming Gators at San Francisco State, uh, you know, are, there, are similar things happening at, at SF State in terms of, like, making your group uh, inclusive, as well as, you know, maybe, like, including roots for people into the industry, either the esports industry or sort of game development and the kind of more STEMI side of things? Yeah, we actually have a lot going on here um, at SF State. Um, recently, actually, this semester, they've um, started the first video game studies minor uh, in the CSU system. Um, that's something that's really big um, for bringing games to more of a forefront on campus and just the, the culture in general. Um, as far as what we're trying to do with Gaming Gators, um, you know, ultimately, I see, as it was mentioned earlier, esports can be the, um, you know, the great equalizer where you don't really have any you know, limitations between social and economic backgrounds and racial backgrounds um, that can separate these players. And that's something I'm really trying to prioritize this year as the president. Um, last semester, we started a women's Valorant team to try to address 
um, and capture some of the significant community of, um, you know, women identifying players um, at SF State and get them on the team um, and get them learning about esports. Um, as far as professional development goes, um, we've actually been fairly successful. There's several um, ex SF State um, and specifically gaming gators that are working professionally in the esports industry right now at at, um, at TSM at Evil Geniuses and other places as well. Um, and you know, a couple of them are actually still on our staff as officers, and they're working to help you know connect other people in the club with people who might lead them to professional development down the road. You know, Luke, in in traditional sports, I mean, particularly college sports, a lot of people play, at, and they know they're never going to go to the professional level, but they may be able to find jobs working in the NBA or working around, you know, the soccer leagues or, or things like that. Are there similar kinds of routes, and is the industry of a sufficient size to, like, provide a viable career for lots of people? Yeah, yeah. Um... I, as someone mentioned earlier, the the attrition rate is really young in esports. So a lot of people are out of the industry by the time they're in their early twenties. Um, as players, uh, yeah, but yeah, as players, exactly, yeah. But I, a lot of them end up kind of landing, you know, as just straight up Twitch streamers, people that are playing the game they used to play professionally, just sort of casually, but that have you know with their audience that they kind of accrued through their esports fame. Other guys kind of end up in kind of management or coaching roles or or some sort of kind of upper management levels within the uh, the esports organizations that they uh, were part of as as active players. So yeah, I, I, there is a uh, the kind of like the kind of family element we see in the NBA and the NFL does definitely exist in esports, except it's also, you know, there's more of a, there's more of kind of a startup vibe with a lot of those companies, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of rounds of seed funding, things like that. You know, it, it's not like, uh, it, it's, it's nothing is quite as set in stone in esports as it would be in, you know, these leagues that have been around since, uh, you know, the 1940s and 50s and stuff like that. So um, uh, the, the the chaos we see in the uh, in, in the actual competitive side does sometimes uh, carry on into the management side. Yeah. It's also, you know, it's a little bit like tennis pros, you know, <laughs> it feels yeah, like there's sure. there are these ways where people can end up being like, oh, well, you know, I never made it as a pro squash player or whatever. But I, now I work at the, the local club. We're talking about the collegiate esports world growing in the Bay Area, going across the country. We were joined by a great panel here. Luke Winky, a writer's kind of our guide to this world. Ryan Winter, president of Gaming Gators at San Francisco State. Joanna Brewer, assistant professor of computer science at Smith College and the director of research at AnyKey, which advocates for inclusivity in gaming. Kirk Robles, who oversees the Cal Esports program. And Ann Zhang, co-lead of the mentorship program with Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming. I want to get to a couple of uh, comments here. Uh, Steven writes, I'm an ancient cisgendered white guy, but your self-identified non-binary spokesperson sounds like someone I'd enjoy spending time with a lot more than most of the traditional gamers, that's in quotes, younger men I've met over the years. I also suspect being on the spectrum and the related capacity for hyper-focus and attention to detail would have a more direct correlation to gaming success than age or social demographics. Natalie writes, my older brother introduced me to gaming, but I didn't truly pick up on esports as an industry until Valorant's release in 2020. I've never felt such a surge of ambition and inspiration, but this new passion has brought out a lot in me. I'm so grateful for my experience at SJSU Esports, where I was able to get a managing position for SJSU's Valorant team and quickly made friends. In game, I've heard vulgar statements, but I've found a safe space in the industry. Thanks for those comments. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about collegiate esports. Joined by writer Luke Winky, SF State's Ryan Winter, Joanna Brewer from Smith College, and Annie Key, uh, director of research there, as well as Kirk Robles and Ann Zhang from Cal. Let's bring in some callers. Sorry to keep you all waiting here. Uh, Ani in Fremont, welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Thanks. This is a great show. I love this topic. So uh, my question was, um, so my son, he, he's a middle schooler. He's really interested in gaming. And I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to hear your comments on what is a way forward for him to get involved or, uh, you know, force the path ahead to get involved in esports. And then the second part is, uh, I, you know, gaming, I myself am a gamer. So uh, I know that it involves hours of sitting in front of uh, a screen and everything. So how do you, uh, or what's the recommendation on balancing out, you know, this versus some kind of physical activity, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, what's, uh, what's your commentary on that? It's ah, interesting. Uh, Ryan Winter, let's start with you on, you know, how does an aspiring esports uh, star go up the ranks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the, the most important thing that, you know, someone needs to focus on if they're interested really in pursuing, you know, climbing the ranks as a competitive gamer, getting into the esports scene, um, is making sure you're always focused on your end goal and also paying attention to your own gameplay and figuring out, you know, what's the best way for you to improve, paying attention to how pro players do it um, and learning from there. Something that was really key to me is I would record my gameplay with something like, um, you know, just OBS or any other recording software. Watch, play, play the game, then stop playing, watch the VOD back, see exactly what I'm doing. Be like, oh, you know, I, you know, get, gain the knowledge of enough of the game to be like, oh, I did that wrong. Oh, I did that wrong. Next time, focus on doing that right. Um, and I, I think that's probably the most important factor. You're uh, watching the tape like a left tackle. That's amazing. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, John Burr, you were uh, a, a very good gamer yourself. Do you have uh, other advice? Yeah, well, I think if you think about, you know, how to uh, help your child progress, um, first of all, you know, balancing any specific uh, special interest uh, with, you know, alternative activities, right, as a parent is super important. So, you know, allowing your kids to focus. We heard a comment earlier about lots of neurodivergent uh, folks are drawn to this. I myself am autistic. I have the capacity to hyper focus to no end. So making sure that you do um, for, you know, whether your child is neurotypical or neurodivergent, build in breaks and, you know, thinking about their body health as well, stretching your hands and stuff like that before game. 
but also uh, playing with other folks. Like I said, one of the best ways to get better is playing with folks just slightly above your own level. So that means if you're in middle school, searching out, um, you know, uh, pickup games and groups in your area. If you uh, look at the organization NASIF, uh, the National um, uh, North American uh, Association of uh, Scholastic uh, Esports, they ha offer a lot of programs for high schools. And so you might want to connect with a, a local area high school as you uh, progress. So getting your child involved with, uh, you know, role models who are taking care of their whole well-being and helping them get better at game using some of those pro techniques, like doing things like, you know, scrimmaging, playing back your own um, video to see where you can improve are great ways to get started. Yeah. And, and Zeng, let's uh, come to you on this. I mean, you, you are the sort of mentorship. You're, you're in mentorship at the Cal Mar Marginalized Genders in Gaming. Do you have advice on sort of taking care of your, your whole self? Yeah, of course. So um, I think everyone gave really great advice on how to improve as within esports as a player. I would also like to remind um, the caller that in esports for, let's say, a common five-person versus five-person team, there's probably a 50-person team that helped manage and organize that event. So even if your child um, eventually does not become a player, there's plenty of other roles, not just STEM-related, like marketing, uh, content, video editing, they can join in the future. And that could also potentially be something interesting they could explore um, as well as playing games. Uh, back to the topic of managing your health while playing games. <laughs> I actually can relate to this because I have pretty bad eyesight. And the most common advice I've gotten is that not only should you take breaks, but you should take the incentive to go outside, um, just like in the sunlight and such, not only because it helps your eyesight, because focusing on something so close, like your screen, can you know, cause your eyes to become accustomed to only looking at close things, having things further away become blurry, but also just physical exercise is good for anyone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, let's take a more skeptical call. Scott in Santa Rosa, welcome to the show. Hi, um, Alexis. I, I wouldn't call myself a, a skeptic. I, I just, uh, with all due respect, I wouldn't categorize this as sport. You know, it's a competition. Um, you don't necessarily have to have any skill set, but pushing a button. Um, I, I, I've been on the phone so long waiting. I forgot. Oh, what sorry. I was say, no, I'm sorry about that. We got a lot to get to. Addiction and behavior. That's mm -hmm. what we should really be concerned about. I mean, you're starting these academic classes about this i mean what about socialization and what about not being in front of a screen for hours at a time i mean I, i'm sure i'm not the only one who knows this but i've have friends that have children that have succumbed to digital addiction it's really sad yeah so yeah. I, I i no i think those I are real issues scott i i think those are real issues and i want to i you know i think Maybe first, um, Ryan, let's address the first part of that. Like the, the skill set that you think is involved in, in playing these games, you know, beyond pressing a button, if you, if you think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I completely understand the perspective of, you know, if you're not really into the industry and knowing how much it takes out of these players to be good, how you, how you can just see, you know, it just looks like someone on their keyboard clacking around, running around, not a whole lot of focus. Um, but I do think... You know, playing in esports takes a, a lot mentally, um, as well as as socially as well. It's a skill of not only being the best you can. You know, the the micro between moving your your mouse, you know, 
two millimeters versus three millimeters and missing your shot, that's something that's really, um, you know, a micro adjustment. But as well, you have to be great at communicating. You have to be able to perceive, you know, in Overwatch, there's 12 different players. So 11 people that are doing something specific against you, you need to understand what's happening and, you know, kind of convert that into a, um, you know, calls that make sense and, um, you know, collaborate with your teammates. Yeah. Um, Kirk, let's go to you on the kind of skepticism around this in an academic setting. Like, I'm sure you encountered this kind of skepticism when you started to to put this program together. Yeah, definitely. I think we had we had an interesting time trying to uh, get more senior leaders on board. But I think again, how how we again managed it was kind of showing the community behind it. Yeah, competitive the competitive scene around. Esports is probably what's more the forefront, but what we saw is more of the community side, um, connecting with these students who, again, didn't ha- didn't feel like they had spaces on campus, and so programs like the Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming uh, was created. But I think also seeing the the surrounding community around it was something that was very attractive to the Department of Recreational Sports, which is really all about the wellness of students, mm-hmm. and realizing that hey, a lot of these students may not actually go to the gym or anything or play basketball, but they're finding their forms of kind of wellness elsewhere outside. And so how do we connect with that? How do we kind of stay above that and really kind of diversify our program offering outside of the students who are just like, oh, I just want to go play basketball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Luke, uh, I know you write about technology more generally too. So I wanted to take, you know, Scott's query, which I, I, I take quite seriously, that this is just kind of another way that we are feeding the kind of digital beast here that like really what this is, is a way for technology companies like Twitch and these esports companies like the industry to make money. And we might clothe it in these different ways. But at the end of the day, it's not like the NFL or the NCAA themselves are good actors either, you know. (laughs) So why would we support the development of more uh, actors like this? Yeah, I mean, there is some truth to that, right? I mean, I think most game companies that have put together an esports league, um, with some exceptions, have done so to, you know, as advertising to promote their products, you know, to to keep their their name in the news. I don't think there's any any secret about that. I guess what I will say is that um, I don't know, man. Like the the thing I like most about esports, like when esports, I think is at its most appealing, is that esports can be really grassroots. Just you know, like especially in its like earlier days, it was just kind of built by land party kind of. Stuff. Yeah, for sure. Like a lot of kids that you know they were they had a passion for a game and they wanted to to demonstrate that and express it and didn't really have the venue to do it and kind of built this industry from from the ground up, like way before. Uh, the money showed up. I, I wrote another story for the Atlantic last year about um, how, like, the first wave of, of esports pros were there were there were a lot of like uh, you know there were a lot of people of color involved in that mm. that early wave you know um, mm-hmm. before uh, before all, of, all that money showed up. So I there is there is a uh, a purity to this business that I don't think has ever fully gotten away, even as you know a lot of technology companies have dumped a lot of capital into it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for that. Uh complex challenge scott i appreciated that a a lot actually um you know ryan i wanted to ask you um you know as someone who's sort of you know running a team a listener asks what does an esports practice involve what kind of skills are you looking to improve and i just want to add one other thing to this do you guys do cross training like playing different games or do you basically stick just inside like if you're league of legends you do that if you're overwatch you do that if you're hearthstone you do that 
yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, so really what a esports team practice looks like, especially, um, you know, in collegiate is, uh, you know, we'll have a few set times during the week for my team. It was Monday, Tuesdays and Fridays, where at 5 p.m. sharp or actually seven, uh, we'd get on, we'd find another college team um, and we'd play against them in the in the game. We play, we play Overwatch, we get in the lobby and we practice, we run strategy. Um, you know, we think about, oh, you know, our strategy is not working here. What can we approve? Um, you know, where can people play to make it a little bit better? Um, and just kind of being cognizant of our our gameplay and especially what we're doing as a team. Um, and yeah, and as far as cross training goes, uh, you know, I'm a little bit different as as also someone who does a lot of coaching. I do feel like there's a lot to gain playing in League of Legends versus an Overwatch, where in League of Legends, it's, you know, it's a different kind of game. You're playing and you're, you know, you're moving around with your clicks instead of, you know, WASD. It's a different perspective. And you can kind of use that perspective and be like, oh, I can play this position a little bit better, focus more on my ability usage. Uh, but I wouldn't say that's a strategy that's like very common in the esports scene. Got it. So interesting. Um, let's take another call here. Caleb in Alameda. Welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Um, so my comment is basically more on the streaming service Twitch than actual esports itself. Um, I play FIFA regularly. And I consider myself fairly good at the game. I tried to make a Twitch stream in the past, um, but I found it was very hard to break into the industry or get a solid follow uh, viewer following, even though I'm winning games consistently. I feel like there's two reasons people go on the platform. It's either to learn how to get better um, at the game, um, and anyone can be good at the game. doesn't matter like what race or sex you are. Um, there's also another section where I, th I think people go um, on the platform just to watch pretty girls play the game and kind of sexualize video games in a way. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's a Good comment, Caleb. I, you know, I'm curious um, what you think, John Brewer, about the the way that streaming, and in particular the way that we're we're talking about it. You know, that this particular kind of stream. Like, do you do you think there's a sexualization of this that should be combated? Do you think that's just part of the marketing of this thing? Like, how should we think about that? Well, I think when we are exposed to images or videos of other human beings, the tendency to sexualize them is increased. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a you know kind of a, a fact of of human nature, right? And so I think that you know when we move from a time of playing video games mostly you know without video or comms or that kind of stuff, like in the '80s and '90s, to where we are today, uh, I think there is more vulnerability for folks who are visibly different in any way. So we see sexualization of players, not just women or or non-binary players or femme uh, presenting players, but sexualization of men, cis cisgendered, white, heterosexual men occurs on Twitch as well. So that that, you know, that ability to sort of interact with a person in real time and maybe kind of, you know, push the envelope a little bit is something that, you know, the folks who are trolls are going to be attracted to. But again, like we were sort of speaking about earlier, there's also an opportunity because you are in charge of the camera. There's a real change with streaming services, which is putting millions of people across the world in the broadcasting hot seat where they get to define a narrative about who they are and what their experience is like. So when we talk about the uh, lack of representation in media of you know uh, folks of marginalized genders and races, when you are that person, you can just flip on a camera and be yourself and do your 
life. And you can change the narrative of what it means to play a video game by just getting on Twitch and doing it and showing up as one more body that looks a little bit different that is doing this thing. And so there's also a real opportunity and that's what we're seeing a lot. There's a, a big wave of change in that visual representation in a way that isn't happening in traditional media that has much stricter channels to entry. And so there's more vulnerability, but there's also just a, a great opportunity to really reshape uh, our, our culture and it's happening right now. And the folks that we're talking to today that are doing this are part of it. Hmm, great answer. Uh, a listener writes, look, I think I'm going to go to you on this, but if anyone knows the, the, the answer to this, feel, feel free to jump in. College football is big in many Southern states, more so than in most other parts of the country. Is there a regional bent to esports? Um, I definitely, I think a lot of colleges on the West Coast have made the most investments into into esports. Um, I know, like, I mean, UC Irvine is probably the uh, the 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 country leader in terms of, of putting a lot of resources into esports. Um, I think it, it's it. I I think that generally, though, the bias not the bias, but the distribution. I tend to notice it's a lot of smaller schools that have kind of gone more all in on esports. Where with the larger schools, it's more of like, you know, something. One of the other things they're doing. It's like, okay, we'll we'll throw a bone to a, to an esports department. I, I, I that's 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 kind of uh, <laughs> what I've noticed is that yeah. the schools that are kind of locked up in the NCAA, they uh, you know they they have their uh, their money making machine right in place. It's definitely <laughs> I think it's the smaller schools that are that are putting mo- most of their uh, most of their bones there. Kirk Robles, what do you think as a Cal esports program director? I think again, I mean, obviously, on the while we're on the West Coast, there is a West Coast bias. Like again, I was part of, uh, I worked closely with the other UCs in which we created um, a UC tournament over the past two years, working with UCLA and UCI. And so it's it's a little bit easier when you have multiple college in the same area who kind of have share the same visions and also being under the UC, we all kind of see the value in this program. And so it's, it's again, to Luke said, I think you're right. Maybe it is on the West Coast that we've involved, been a lot more involved, but um, being around like-minded people, it makes it much easier to do and move things forward, especially at the collegiate level. We have been talking about the collegiate esports world growing here in the Bay Area and around the world. We have been joined by Kirk Robles, who oversees the Cal esports program, and Zhang, co-lead of the mentorship program of Cal Marginalized Genders in Gaming, Joanna Brewer, director of research at AnyKey, which advocates for inclusivity in gaming, Ryan Winter, president of Gaming Gators at San Francisco State, and Luke Winky, freelance writer, writes a lot about esports, and a lot of other really great features. Awesome writer. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning, everyone. This hour of forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Jennifer Ng. This show in particular was produced by Jennifer. Thank you. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell is the lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brandon Willard, Chris Hoff, and Christopher Beale. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Welcome to Team Lulu. Susan Davis is senior producer. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.